from Television City in Hollywood. Hey, man! I'm your pre-owned. I don't fool with no horses, boy. He's a habitual line stepper. Any savage at all, your mustache is crooked. Come on, man. What are we doing out there, man? What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on here? Oh, my good, goodness gracious! Quiet, numbskulls, I'm broadcasting. I demand the hour, demand the power, to speak to me, sour! Plausibly live, but recorded in parts. From the rolling hills of Saratoga County, New York, it's the one, the only, Keep It To Yourself podcast. And now, here's your host, Jason Bullock. I have no idea who he is, but he was dug and dug. All right, that's enough, Morgan. And you're quite welcome. This is episode 126 of the Old Kitty Pod, coming to you on the... 13th of June, 2021. It's quite different around here in Bullet House, and I'll tell you why in one more thing. I don't want to spoil it right now. Well, I've had some things to talk about here. We're going to resume our Baseball in the 70s series, and we're going to get into a lot more than that coming up in this episode. But first, let me get the social media plugs out of the way. You can find this podcast on Twitter at keep underscore podcast. The Instagram civilian, of course, is Jason underscore five one eight three eight. There's also the I mentioned, I mentioned the Facebook page. Yeah, there's a Kitty Pod Facebook page. World's loneliest email k i t y pod at gmail So there you go. All right, folks, we've now reached the vanity portion of this podcast, and you're probably asking yourself, what has happened in the life of one J. Michael Bullis since last he spoke and you listened? Well. We've had plenty happen. This has been action-packed, but for mostly the wrong reasons. Let's get to the bad here. My dance companion, this woman named Nancy, she wound up getting sick back on, well, two weekends ago as I record this. Weekend before last, really. And she had come down with a bit of a fever, and was there was some uncertainty as to whether or not she and Dad were going to come home. But they decided, all right, well come home, take Nancy to an emergent care facility. Okay, just, you know, not like the one up in Malta, but the one down the road from Bullet House to the east is from as I'm sitting right now. And here's the clinker. The crazy thing is they had her take a urine sample to diagnose what she had. And she couldn't do it right then and there. So I said, all right, we're going to come home. You guys are open until 9 o'clock. So they decided to come home like, well, once Nancy decides to, you know, you know, make with the urination, we'll go back there, give her a sample, and we'll take it from there. It took almost like an eternity to do something like that, but they gave her medicine and all was well with Nancy. But then she told me several days later, she wound up getting a tick bite. Her fever broke. That's the good news. The bad news there was she had gotten a tick bite and she had to go get medication for that. I don't know what you can blame it on. Climate change, old age, I really don't know. I haven't gotten a tick bite, and I hope to God not to get one of those things. Well, on the positive side, the weekend was full of some great events. Saturday night, I had my last online Cards Against Humanity night, maybe forever with the world slowly starting to open back up. As I record this now, I start recording this Sunday night, or Sunday afternoon, really. And now, 
Here it is, Tuesday the 15th. It has just been announced that New York State has reached the goal of 70% of its citizens vaccinated, of whom I am one, and most restrictions that were in place to curb the spread of coronavirus are going to be lifted. In fact, just over an hour from now, there's going to be an impromptu fireworks show at the Empire State Plaza down in Albany. I look forward to Cards Against Humanity be play, being played. Hello. It's just after 8 o'clock in the evening here. And the Yankees have tied Toronto one all. little sports update for you. That's not going to matter when this episode drops. Anyway, back to the lecture at hand. It was a almost but not quite sparsely attended, by my standards, Cards Against Humanity. And speaking of in-person events, this was kind of 11th hour, but that afternoon on the Saturday, I had gotten an invite to my friend Dave's brother-in-law's house for a swimming party, or a pool party as it's rather known. And it was kind of 11th hour, I said, all right, I'll go. Two o'clock in the afternoon, temperatures were in the 90s. This is early June, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, climate change, and fuck you too at the same time. But it was it was quite the day to get into a pool. No better day you could have thought of to do something like that. I had not been to this house since the original owner of said house had passed away. A lot of renovations were done. And it was great seeing, like, uh, the little, uh, got a little side bathroom or spare bathroom, you want to call it. Redid the living room, the kitchen. Looked real nice, to be honest with you. And a number of good friends were there. I got to go in the swimming pool for the first time in three years or thereabouts. And it was nice and cool in that pool, like 74 degree water temperature. I may as well have gone and done the polar plunge at Lake Georgia on New Year's Day. It felt cold getting in that pool. Oh, man, I thought I'm going to have a heart attack. This is how it goes. That's going to be my feeling. Like, all right, tell me again how Jason died. Well, he went to his friend's house for a pool party. He dipped his toes in that pool for the first time. Got up to his waist, killed him dead. Went harder than a carp. But I had a great time. I was in that pool for an hour, dried off. Then after such time, changed my clothes. And then the host said, oh, you're leaving? I said, all right, I'll take this. I'm like, oh, see you guys later. Hope you guys had a great time. Enjoyed what's little is left of your weekend. I'll see you around sometime soon. The host brother-in-law told me by Facebook DM that I left a bottle of suntan lotion and bug spray there, which I would get back. Spoilers about what caused the return in the next episode, 127. So... You take the good, you take the bad, and you mix them up. And there you have the vanity portion of the Keep It To Yourself podcast, the 126th episode in the series. And now, ladies and gentlemen, to our main attraction. Ah, the 1970s. The decade of disco, leisure suits, political scandals, and overall unease. In fact, take out the first two items and you've pretty much got these times. Baseball, much like the world of sports in general, began the decade being insulated from the outside world, only to end it transformed and forced to deal with the changes it had wrought. We'll discuss the effect of these changes, but we'll also throw the spotlight on some lesser talked about events along the way. The night before the morning in America, it's a chronological look at baseball in the 1970s. This time around, we take a deep dive into one of the more colorful characters the game has ever produced, Charlie Finley. Charles Oscar Finley was born on February 22, 1918, 
in the Inslee section of Birmingham, Alabama. He was also raised in Gary, Indiana, and later lived in the nearby city of LaPorte. Keep that place in the back of your mind as it will come up many times later on. As a young man in his late 20s, Finley suffered a near-fatal bout of tuberculosis, but managed to stave off the Grim Reaper thanks to willpower and the advice of his wife's obstetrician. Speaking of his wife, Finley married the former Shirley McCartney in 1941, and the couple had eight children to their name. There was to have been a ninth child, James, but he quickly died after his birth. The marriage lasted 33 years until the couple separated in 1974, with Shirley getting the gold mine and then some. According to a biographer who was close to Finley, he had been unfaithful to Shirley and was estranged from his family and even his closest friends, though some of his children did make up with him before he passed away. Shirley outlived her estranged husband by 14 years, passing away herself in 2010. But briefly back to the TB tussle. Finley was inspired by that event to become among the first in the insurance industry, that was his stock and trade, to write group medical insurance policies for those in the medical profession. Surely those were in use during the height of the coronavirus pandemic. During his time as an insurance salesman, where Finley would make a killing, he developed a flair for inventive business practices. Oft times he would woo a potential client by driving him through the richest neighborhood in Gary, point out a random large mansion, and tell the client it was his saying he was having it remodeled, quote-unquote, at the time. Finley would eventually earn enough wealth that he could have bought one of those mansions, but instead he purchased a home in Laporte, the property of which contained an 11-room colonial manor house, which resembled the White House, and nine barns. So what to do with all this newfound wealth? Why not purchase a professional baseball team? Finley's first attempt to buy the Philadelphia Athletics in 1954 fell flat when the owners of the other American League clubs shot down the planned purchase in favor of Arnold Johnson, a financier. Johnson moved the Athletics franchise to Kansas City the following year, and after drawing over a million fans that season, the lack of a competitive roster caused attendance to dwindle afterwards. The Athletics had effectively become a New York Yankees farm club, with 10 former players as part of the Yankees' 1961 World Series championship squad. Towards the end of 1960, Finley got himself quite the Christmas present as he bought a controlling interest in the athletics from Johnson's estate. He had passed away after suffering a cerebral hemorrhage during spring training that season. A year later, he bought out the minority owners. Finley was quick to turn around the struggling franchise, going in search of lesser-known and unheralded talent. However, he garnered criticism for not proposing deals with the Yankees. See World Series roster comma 1961. For all this, he was effectively both the owner and the general manager. He also harkened back to his insurance salesman days and his penchant for inventive marketing and business practices, replacing the team's elephant mascot with a mule which he named Charlie O. The mule made his presence felt in the outfield of Kansas City's Municipal Stadium, as well as cocktail parties in the press room, much to the annoyance of the media. While he refused to deal with the Bronx Bombers, Finley got wind from Ed Lopat that the Yankees' dominating success in the 1950s 
into the mid-1960s came in part from the dimensions of the old Yankee Stadium. That, much like the current Yankee Stadium, has a short porch in right field, and Finley sought to replicate it. In so doing, he created the KC Pennant Porch, which was 296 feet from home plate. It didn't last long, though, as Major League Baseball admonished Finley for his competitive move and after two exhibition games, ordered him to move the right field fence back to the regulation distance of 325 feet. Also in 1963, Finley changed the club's color scheme from blue and white to its present-day combination of Kelly Green, Fort Knox Gold, and Wedding Gown White. Finley's business practices weren't limited to the product on the field. In 1964, while the Beatles were in the midst of their landmark tour of America, he decided to cash in on Beatlemania and announced that the Fab Four would be playing a concert at Municipal Stadium on September 17th of that year. John Lennon, co-songwriter and later intellectual of the group, balked at Finley strong-arming them into the concert date, thus forcing what would have been an off day in New Orleans by the boards. As if that were enough to chap his arse, he also didn't like the fact that they were asked to play well past their standard 30-minute set. It seemed as though the then-record sum of $150,000 wasn't worth it to entertain the screaming teenage girls of Kansas City and surrounding environments. The tickets for the concert even had the image of Finley donning a wig not unlike the band's signature mop-top haircuts, as well as a statement saying, Today's Beatle fans are tomorrow's baseball fans. End quote. That concert and plenty of mediocre baseball aside, Finley moved the franchise to Oakland, California in January 1968, and this is where the story really starts. Even before arrival in the East Bay, Charlie Finley had begun to amass talent from the club's minor league farm system. Players such as Reggie Jackson, yes that Reggie Jackson, Sal Bando, Vita Blue, Raleigh Fingers, Jim Catfish Hunter, and Burt Campanaris soon made their way to the show. By the mid-1970s, this core group had gelled, and the team had gone seemingly from the outhouse to the penthouse, winning five consecutive American League Western Division titles and three consecutive World Series titles. All the while, Finley continued experimenting with gameplay. During a spring training exhibition versus the Cleveland Indians on March 19, 1973, Orange baseballs were used for the first and last time ever in an MLB-sanctioned game. I say that advisably because the idea of orange balls rather than the traditional off-white pills went over like a fart in church. Also of note was the advent of Harvey, a mechanical rabbit whose sole purpose was to hand the balls back to the umpire. That didn't last long either, and one can assume the rabbit went back to some far-flung Greyhound racetrack. He also offered a bonus of $300 to any of his players who could grow a mustache, thus giving rise to Raleigh Fingers' trademark handlebar mustache. Also, towards the end of his ownership, Finley spotted a teenager dancing in the Oakland Alameda County Coliseum parking lot for money. He immediately hired him for $7 a game to give play-by-play over the phone to Finley's farm in LaPorte, Indiana, where he ran the club with his cousin Carl while frequently traveling to Oakland. When the A's player saw him, he was dubbed Hammer due to his physical resemblance to the late Hank Aaron. This teenager, who was a de facto executive vice president at the tender age of 16, was named Stanley Burrell, who would go on to become a rapper 
who performed as MC Hammer. You can't touch this. You can't touch this. You can't touch this. Finley also introduced Ball Girls, one of which would go on to found the Mrs. Fields cookie chain and advocate for night games during the World Series, which would surely increase attendance and viewership on television. As far as players, during the 1975 campaign, Finley used Herb Washington as a designated runner. A four-time NCAA track All-American at Michigan State University, Washington made 92 appearances wherein he stole 29 bases, though he was unsuccessful in just over half his attempts, and scored as many runs. Much to the chagrin of his teammates, who thought his presence was taking away a roster spot, meant for someone more valuable. While the Athletics, who officially changed their name to the A's in 1970 and thus brought about the Swing and A's moniker, were making like the Chicago Bulls of two decades later, Finley's tenure as owner was not without controversy or conflict. Finley had tried to use manager Dick Williams to carry out his whims, but the two often found themselves at loggerheads. All came to a head during the 1973 World Series against the New York Mets, when Williams, finally sick to his back teeth with Finley's meddling, announced his resignation prior to the series' third game. His resignation would take effect at the end of the season, of course. Finley finally put Williams on the scrap heap and would only return to manage the California, now Los Angeles, Angels, midway through the following season. Finley eventually hired Alvin Dark, who was more able to do his boss's bidding. But Finley's biggest opponent came in the form of MLB Commissioner Bowie Kuhn. During the aforementioned 73 series, Finley caught heat from Kuhn when it came out that he had ordered a second baseman Mike Andrews off the roster after an error-filled Game 2, which was an over four-hour-long sloppy affair in and of itself though the A's won it by a score of 10-7 in 12 innings, and despite a combined six errors. Citing medical reasons, Andrews was taken off the roster, but Finley was fined $5,000 for circumventing the roster rules, and thus Andrews was put back on the roster. Despite all the success on the field, Finley achieved little, if any of it, financially. After buying the franchise, he was only able to cop $20,000 in sales, despite sending out 600,000 brochures to prospective clients. Running a baseball team is a hell of a lot different than, say, selling insurance, and Finley found that out the hard way. Another way to market your team is through having a strong radio and or television station through which to air your games, and the A's had neither of those going for them. In fact, for the first month of the 1978 campaign, if you wanted to hear the A's in action, you had to tune in KALX, the student-run 10-watt radio station of the University of California in nearby Berkeley, and hear students rather than professional play-by-play -play and color commentators describe the game. So, limited audience at best. The following season, Finley managed to ink a deal with KNEW just before opening day. Talk about leaving things to the last minute. Also, they weren't exactly a box office hit, even during their championship years. Speaking of which, the A's dynasty began to crumble with the 1974 World Series celebrations already in full swing. Previously, when a player signed with a major league club, they held his rights until the ownership deemed him surplus to requirements. Either that or the player retired of his own volition. 
Catfish Hunter, who won the Cy Young Award that season as the best pitcher in the American League, was getting tired of his dealing with Finley's antics and wanted out claiming breach of contract. Thanks to his attorney, Hunter found a legal loophole to go forward with his claim, and Peter Seitz, the arbitrator for the MLB Players Association, declared Hunter a free agent. This ushered in the era of free agency in Major League Baseball, which has lasted to this day and has since been introduced in other professional sports leagues in North America. And in the most stunning of ironies, Hunter signed with the Yankees in time for the 75 season. While the A's claimed the AOS title that year, free agency would decimate the team as most of the dynasty builders were gone by the time America celebrated its bicentennial in 1976. In 1980, Finley exited baseball ownership by agreeing in principle to sell the A's franchise to businessman Marvin Davis, who originally planned to move the team to Denver, Colorado. On a side note, the Rocky Mountains would get their own Major League Baseball franchise, but not for another decade or so. However, those plans were thwarted when Al Davis, no relation, the equally colorful owner of the NFL's Oakland Raiders, announced he was moving the team to Los Angeles. Thus, the A's were barred from breaking their lease to the Coliseum with both the city of Oakland and Alameda County. Finley ultimately sold the franchise to Walter Haas Jr., the president of Levi Strauss & Company, yes, the company that's famous for making denim jeans, for the paltry sum of $12.7 million, and thus Finley would return to Laporte. Seems like a harbinger of how sports are nowadays with corporate interests owning baseball clubs and professional sports franchises rather than actual human beings. During his time in the Hoosier State and as an owner, Finley would invite the A's players and their families to spend time on his manor for picnics and pool parties and have themselves generally a high old time. He spent his later years in Laporte and remained heavily involved in the community until the end of his life. On that subject, Charles Finley was admitted to Chicago's Northwestern Memorial Hospital with heart disease and passed away there on February 19, 1996, just three days shy of his 78th birthday. Thus ended the colorful life and career of a baseball ownership maverick. Alright folks, I hope you found that last segment educational, informative, and maybe entertaining. You'll have to forgive me, there's a guy who is cutting his grass 8 o'clock on a Tuesday night. Who does that? Uh, anyway, it's time for the pod shout-outs and then one more thing to close out the show. No episode of Greens from Allentown this past week. Peter Winston giving the podcast a week off and a very unusual time to do it. But we do have GFA Live. Peter and Keith Langston did a live watch of an episode of WWF Primetime Wrestling, 5th of August, 1991. Sportscaster with Steve Bennett. A Euro 2020, or shall I say 2021 preview with John Champion, talking a little footy slash soccer. Hope you're enjoying that. And also Paige Hamilton of the band Helmet. So sports and music, something for everyone from Steve Bennett. Steve and Dave Rollins on the 24-inch podcast took a look at Hulk Hogan's performance at the first ever Survivor Series way back in 1987. The Break It Down show had a bunch of great episodes as usual. Later episodes, if you want the later stuff, check out the YouTube channel because it's going to come out in the podcast feed later on. And the Low Little podcast, Bill Pitcher was on the podcast. Brad Weiss 
Chuck and Roxy got to answer my final five, and I want to say at this time a big shout-out and thank you to everybody who participated in the Friday Five. I asked the questions for once. You gave the answers, and there are some great ones, too. I truly appreciate it. I got a comment in my handwriting as well, so there you go right there. Also, Bill Isaacson made his way onto the podcast just recently. So there you go. Check those podcasts out. As for this and my true crime podcast, get ready for a Father's Day special. That's all I'm going to say. You can check these podcasts out on Spotify, on Google Podcasts. Uh, my true crime podcast is not on Apple for some strange reason, but the Kitty Pod is. And the, both podcasts are available at the podcast if you're choosing. Just paste the feed and away you go. If the podcast if you're choosing has capabilities of reviewing and or giving a rating to this podcast... I highly recommend giving this podcast a five-star rating and a good write-up. really helps me out. Thank you in advance. All right, we've gone through some jollity in this episode, but shit's about to get heavy. I really hate to end on a down note, but I have to in this case. It's one more thing, and it's a very solemn one, where I have to say melancholy happy trails to a four-legged member of the Kitty Pod family. Otis the Wonder Dog, whom you may have heard or heard me reference on the podcast for low these many years, has crossed the Rainbow Bridge as of last Friday, 11th of June, 2021. The day I dropped my Friday Five on the TK Little Smart and Funny Facebook page, not that it has anything to do with it, uh, it's been quite a uh, adjustment, not having a four-legged friend up here to bother me, you know, sitting alongside me in bed in my room or in the living room here at Bullet House. Uh, He'd had some troubles here. Otis was a wonderful dog, but towards the end of the run, he had to go to the bathroom quite a deal. In fact, going so far as to get me up at 5 o'clock, 5.15, even 5.30 in the morning, just so I could let him out. On weekends, I wouldn't feed him until I got up for the day. Uh, You know, I would feed him during the week, obviously, as I was going to be getting ready for work. One last thing to do when I finally did get downstairs and take care of business and get my day started. Otis was a Brindle boxer mix. Brindle was his, uh, his fur color. You can see mostly brown, but spots of white and black all about. He was a wonderful dog. He may have driven us in the family crazy. He could be annoying. I certainly know because there are times I would be downstairs for a long time. And be like, hey, old Fisty McGee. He's going to be downstairs for some time. He's going to be coming up for quite a while. I'm going to steal part of his bed. I'm really going to put the grass up him. <laughs> or something like that. Or mixed metaphors. But... Having a dog like Otis was really great, especially we really gotten close the last couple of years when it was just me at the house and my dad had gone away to visit Nancy. Or the two of them had left together as it gotten serious in the last year or so. But I gotta tell you what, I miss having Otis around. I miss having mom around too. She's the reason this podcast got launched in the first place, her passing. Not to harp on it too much, but there you go. On St. Patrick's Day 2012, a dog came into Bullet House here in Half Moon. This was over a year after we moved into the rolling hills of Saratoga County from the foothills of the Adirondack Mountains, Wilton Saratoga Way. We had a little adjustment, and then after a while, I was like, all right, let's get ourselves a pet here. Let's really do it. So my parents went to a local pet shop and adopted this Boxer mix from Tennessee, and we named him Otis. We were going to name him Pat because it was St. Patrick's Day when he came into our lives. 
And that was it, man. I had to clean up piss and shit at night when he was just a little puppy. But he grew into a great dog. He was a great companion. We got close when mom passed away. Then dad got his relationship going with his companion. It's truly a sad time to not have him at the house. I don't know what to say, but he had not been feeling well. My dad had been crying over Otis to try and get him to, you know, go number one. And I'll leave it at that. He could eat somewhat. His appetite got affected. And during those last several weeks, we really had to get some incentives going to get him to eat. He did eventually, but it wound up taking a toll on his health. Last Monday, Nancy noticed that there was some bleeding from the mouth. And little did anyone know that the worst was about to come. I came home Wednesday night and we thought, oh, he's going to have to be put down. But the dog was still there. My brother-in-law had come up and, you know, given some advice on what to do. Essentially, doggy hospice care. And I was told that Otis the Wonder Dog had a tumor in his bladder. He got taken up to the vets in Malta. And that was a discovery there. We were just holding out like, well, we're going to hold out for a while. And then Friday afternoon, the final blow fell. And that was it for Otis. My dad told me that there was not a dry in the house at the vets as Otis was uh, slowly being ushered into doggy heaven. Nine years old. Well, actually, he was 10 years old, but we had him in the house for nine years. Part of the family. Just as beloved as mom was. Otis the Wonder Dog, keep on rocking out in doggy heaven. I miss you, bud. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.